This is Cognation, the podcast about cognitive psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, technology, the future of the human experience, and other stuff we like. It's hosted by me, Joe Hardy. And by me, Rolf Nelson. Welcome to the show. Before we start today, I uh, just wanted to say a little bit about support for the show. If you like what you're hearing, then just give us a good rating on iTunes or whatever service it is that you're listening on. We don't have any sponsors yet. If you like it, we would be happy to get positive reviews on your service. You can also follow us on Twitter. My Twitter is JLHardyPhD. You can also follow the, the show at NationCog, as well as on Facebook, but Twitter is a little easier to follow us. If you're interested in participating on the show, if you're a neuroscientist or co a cognitive psych psychologist or just have thoughts and opinions about it, uh, you know, reach out to us. Topic that you'd like to hear about, certainly. I would give you my Twitter, a Twitter address, but I am totally never on Twitter, so I don't even know what my Twitter account is. I think I checked it twice. You can send me a telegram about it. All right, so, so the paper for today... It's technically an editorial in a journal called Frontiers in System Neuroscience, and it is called Augmentation of Brain Function, Facts, Fiction, and Controversy. This is an article by Mikhail Lebedev, Ion Opress, and Manuel Casanova. It essentially distills down a whole bunch of articles that appeared in the journal. It's a total of 148 articles that are on different aspects of brain augmentation, over 600 authors that contributed in some way to this, and a lot of stuff that's really on the cutting edge of research in brain augmentation. So this includes original research and some opinion pieces, ethics of brain augmentation, and from all different kinds of perspectives. Some of this may sound familiar from our some of our previous episodes, but this also may give a broader perspective on a little more research in the area and what kinds of new things are on the radar for the future. They break it down into three volumes. The first volume is brain-machine interfaces. The second volume is neurostimulation and pharmacological approaches. And then the third one is from clinical applications to ethical issues and futuristic ideas they sort of see those as being like the three broad categories that they can group this uh, brain augmentation series into, into those three big buckets. So uh, we can kind of tackle these just in order, I guess. So the first one is brain machine interfaces. And we've talked a little bit about those on our show with Adrian Nestor. Uh, we talked about neural decoding and getting information from the brain and uh, he was looking at reconstructing the kinds of perceptions that you'd be having. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's a great discussion of this kind of stuff by uh, someone with his boots on the ground that's actually doing this kind of research. Episode uh, five, I believe. Episode five, yeah, <laughs> episode five. Uh, literally dozens of downloads. Dozens, yeah. <laughs> so the some of the topics that they covered in brain-machine interfaces here are interesting developments in uh, brain-machine interfaces for controlling bipedal walking. You know, if you think about what would be the, the canonical application of a brain-machine interface that would be useful, 
to people that you could imagine working in the relatively near future, it would have to be that one. You have someone who's paralyzed from the waist down and you've got, you've basically given them legs. Uh, or maybe even, uh, maybe in this case, I don't know if they're paralyzed from the waist down. Maybe they're, they're, you know, somehow their legs are, you know, missing from the, the thigh down or something along these lines. And now you can augment their experience of the world by, by giving them robot legs, essentially, that they can control with their brain. Yeah, and this is obviously exciting and has a direct usefulness that you can see in it. No, for sure. And I, you know, I think of all of the things that that you can look at, I mean, I think a lot of the brain-machine interface technologies that are out there, whether they be invasive or non-invasive, they really, um, it's a big distinction if you're trying to go after cortical outputs versus if you're trying to go for more peripheral outputts. And I think it, it's, a, it's a question mark, I guess, of whether we're going to define peripheral outputs as being uh, brain-machine interfaces or not. But I think some people would. So, I mean, for example, yeah, you can imagine having uh, you know, robot legs that were controlled where the, the inputs for the machine were outputs that were recorded from neurons in the periphery. So, for example, you know, neurons that were in, you know, in the upper leg, for example. That would be like one type of interface versus if you were trying to control it from uh, recordings from the cortex, for example, that would be a very different output or recordings from the spinal cord or spinal neurons. You know, all of those would be very different kinds of you know, experiences. Yeah, so, um, and I think there's a range of the kinds of recordings that they're doing. Uh, they also... I mean, this also depends a little bit on the kind of robotic technology that you're connected to. So uh, in one of these, there's a description of robot-assisted exoskeletons, right? So the exciting version of this is uh, Iron Man. This would be like a, an early form of Iron Man. I mean, that'd be useful for uh, anyone with damage to their outer limbs or, I guess, for remote control robots too, right? eventually that's right yeah exactly Some avatar type stuff yeah i was just watching um this is not mentioned in this article but i was just uh, watching a video from uh, a company called control labs which is based out of new york and they have a, a peripheral neural interface where basically they're measuring from the wrist actually in this case and they're basically trying to argue that they can measure the neural responses in the wrist. So and this is with uh, like an electrode on the outside of the wrist. That's right, exactly. Like a like a wristband, mm -hmm. and you can just think about typing, for example, mm -hmm. and basically essentially control, a, you know, like a computer. That is rad. How does it? How well does it work? I mean, I mean, the video it was pretty compelling for sure. You know, you could definitely see, well, for sure, what worked super well is if uh, the CEO was, was showing a video of himself typing without a keyboard. The, the, elect, the electrodes were recording from the neurons in the wrist. Okay, so he's actually, so he's, actually mo he's, he's moving the fingers in the same way that you'd move if you were typing. That's so right. It's getting that kind of, getting some kind of potential off of, off of um, the, the muscles moving. And the signals to move muscles. 
That's right. Now, it, uh, the interesting thing here is that you know you, ha- you can. There's always the question of how much of the signal that you're recording is actually neural signal versus signals from the muscles themselves. Mm-hmm. And that was my question when I was watching the video. I was like, I wonder how much of this is signals coming just from the neurons themselves versus from the muscles. And why is that important? Well, it has some consequences as to the kinds of control that you can have. If you have to literally move your your fingers exactly the same way that you would move your fingers when you were typing, then there's really not, I mean, it's not that much of an advantage, right? I mean, maybe you don't have yeah, to have a typewriter have go, there. Yeah, cool. especially especially for the lazy person who just wants to think and have things typed out, right? That's right. But that's right. That's the question. You still have to move then, right? Yeah, if you actually have to move your muscles... What a pain that is! What a pain! What a pain! It yeah, is. the whole point of brain-machine interfaces is should it, it should require less work. Exactly, exactly. Or if you don't, if you don't have the ability to move, for example, for whatever reason, yeah. And then the other demonstration was they were arguing that they could show these control movements without any muscle movement. But I was, you know, if you look carefully, even in the video, you can see that while they're nominally thinking about making these movements and not actually doing them. So for example, when try if you ball up your fist and then try to extend your hand, mm-hmm. but you hold your hand, your fist in the other hand, mm-hmm. they could basically show a representation of, of a hand opening. So you could actually essentially use the signal of, of a hand opening at that point. So, and if you were, you know, they, they were arguing that they could control, you know, have these control systems where they were essentially recreating the movements of the hand or arm when the hand or arm was not moving. But you could see that they were, they were making these little micro movements. Yeah. And it wasn't know, just thinking about it. We know that muscle potent, electrical signals from muscles moving is uh, can give a much stronger signal than than neural signals yeah and and and, and in these pre these public presentations they don't um they don't mention that at all uh which i think is interesting yeah well this is like uh a lot of the eeg stuff the the versions of the sort of toy eeg things like uh, neurosky neurosky exactly they make uh the the force one the star wars version where you're you're using your attention to raise something up, and it seems pretty clear that most of the signal that you're getting that's moving it is just tensing up in your forehead. Right, exactly. Rather exactly. than some kind of neural synchrony or, or a genuine neural signal. And it's much easier to do, too. And, you know, if you're trying to make something, if you're trying to raise, a, you know, a, an X-wing up, you're going to kind of squint your forehead a little bit anyway right so yeah i mean that, that but it is never the nevertheless the case that certainly in the, you know for people who have amputations for example you know, taking advantage of those more peripheral neurons could be really powerful yeah i guess one of the issues might be if you've got a large you know if your whole leg is missing it would be hard to take signals from that and get sort of a detailed signal that would move around your entire leg in in all different ways and say move your toes and everything that's extended out there 
he might give you a, a gross movement, like, you know, a, a small signal that could move you forward or backward or something like that. But it'd be difficult to get a, a good representation of everything that's missing. I wonder. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't actually I don't know I don't, either. I don't, I, don't know, yeah. I don't know how hard it is to get that. That's You, that's you would probably have to be, a, you would have to learn and remap. Certainly it wouldn't be like the natural thing. And of course, feedback has to be part of that. Somehow you need to get a feedback signal. So that's where having the robot move itself actually is a way to, to develop that feedback. So it's like a loop. But in the, you know, I guess in, in the meantime, you could develop feedback that was more, you know, maybe just some sort of visual representation, you know, using a kind of virtual reality or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That might yeah, be an yeah. interesting approach. Well, I was just, you know, talking about the idea that there's the peripheral versus more central uh, types of devices. So if you have th devices that are measuring from the brain itself, a lot of these uh, brain computer interfaces are more the EEG type devices, as, as we've been, you know, as mm -hmm. we mentioned, and EEG has its own challenges. And then you can have the more, you know, implantable type devices, which have a different set of challenges, obviously, because now you have to uh, worry about the integrity of the tissues, but you're much closer to the signal. So there's potential opportunities as we think discussed. And I think, uh, was that was one of our earlier episodes. Mm -hmm. We discussed this in some depth talking about the, um, you know, if you can, you know, have these electrode arrays that you lay over the cortex and you can get a level of, of granularity and definition that you can't get, or is difficult to get from, uh, EEG electroencephalography. Where yeah, the electrodes and, are on the outside of the skull. Yeah, ex exactly. And I mean, one of the things that I guess people wouldn't necessarily think of is that because the cortex itself is all folded up, right? You get a um, kind of a mixing up of signals, so it's hard to locate exactly where a signal's coming from. The brain's just kind of squished in your head, and if you have something that's actually on the surface of it, you can get a better you can get a better idea of where the signal's coming from. It doesn't get mushed up and averaged as it as it goes through the skull. Exactly. And the, and the way they describe that here in the editorial, they say, while EEG-based BMIs, uh, brain-machine interfaces, are easy to implement and safe to use, their information transfer rate is limited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So information transfer rate can be improved if the electrical activity is recorded from the surface of the brain using electro corticography okay ecog a minimally invasive method now, i don't yeah. know how, i mean the minimal is like a little bit in the eye of the beholder there well it is on the surface of the brain so there are, you have to be somewhat invasive to you know take off your take off part of your skull and put it there so for sure for sure i'm not i'm not signing up for that one yet not yet <laughs> Give it a couple months. It's not a casual usage one. No, no, no. Well, maybe we can. Uh, oh, you had another point you wanted to make there. Mm, I think some of this is in the in some of, when we talk about some of the actual articles too. We'll get to some of the most interesting stuff. That's right. We're going to dive into the top ten most interesting articles from this uh, from this topic. Yeah, and we can make our own top ten too. I think they give the. Well, we'll hold on. We'll hold off for that for a minute. So the other, the second category that that is talked about is neurostimulation and pharmacological approaches. And neurostimulation, first of all, you could you can do brain writing. You could 
you could potentially communicate something to the brain. But there's also another set of um, neurostimulation technologies that have been re used in recent years that people suggest have some beneficial effects on brains. Right, exactly. So if you think about augmentation coming from very different perspectives, so in this volume one brain-machine interface, augmentation is you have some peripheral device that you're essentially trying to hook the brain into. So you're trying to basically control using neural signals in a less direct way. Uh, well, I, <laughs> whether it's yeah. more or less direct way. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of uh, interface than using your hands or your mouth or, or you know, any other sort of uh, modality that you naturally have trying to augment the brain by adding a peripheral device to it, hooking it and, up. And the most common, commonly used device today that you'd see in psychology labs and also for therapeutic uses is TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a way of directing a magnetic pulse into an area of the brain that can have essentially two effects. You can either, well, it has both effects at the same time. It can it can cause stimulation of an area or excitement in neurons of an area. And then afterwards, it sort of wears that area out. And then you see a reduction in activity there. So what TMS is often used for in research is figuring out what an area of the brain does by essentially deactivating it or scrambling it for a little while. But there are other sort of uh, promising things for TMS too. In terms of uh, therapy, TMS seems to be something that can be helpful with depression. That's right. So in this volume two style augmentation, now you're trying to act on the brain directly through either some sort of electrical stimulation or some pharmac pharmacological stimulation. And that stimulation can be either excitatory or inhibitory or some, some complex combination of, of the two. So there are several questions that come up in this space around whether you're talking about uh, TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TDCS, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation. You know, and that's or, the kind of stimulation that's essentially hooking a nine volt battery up to your brain. That's right, exactly. So just yeah, you know, basically putting that electricity right into your brain, and and uh, you know. As, as you can imagine, activating neurons uh, because, you know, they're responsive to electricity. Now, that, and this is a, I mean, it's an interesting area, but we don't know exactly what the future of transcranial direct current stimulation is going to be. It seems like there's a lot of promise with some recent articles. But the one thing that it kind of makes me think of is in Minneapolis, there used to be a museum called the Museum of Questionable Medical Devices. Okay. <laughs> where, they, where they had stuff like phrenology machines, and there was a lot of stuff that was, you know, electricity is, you know, it's a cure-all for everything. So, you know, electrical belts and electrical zappers of all kinds. And this, in a way, kind of feels like that. It's like, a, you know, electricity is exciting and interesting and a bit like, the fakiness of wearing magnets to help out, right? That's right. No, 
well, we know that it has. We know that it has some. It, we know that it has some beneficial effects. Well, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, you know, whether it has beneficial effects or not is is a you know, there are certainly we know that it has effects. We know exactly, that it has there effects. are definitely effects. The brain is responsive to electricity, and if you apply electricity to the brain, it will have an impact uh, if you apply enough of it in the right places. Yeah. And then there's the question of. What is that effect? Is it something that you want or not? And uh, under what conditions? Yeah, should you just always be exposed to more electricity? Is that just a, it's just going to help you think in general? That seems unlikely, but... Yeah, I, I think there's, there's situations where the stimulation of certain parts of the brain have benefits. And I think one of these areas uh, where this comes up is in Parkinson's disease, like very advanced... Parkinson's disease where you have someone with a, a movement disorder and you know applying some stimulation to the um, this is now like an invasive technique but implantable right. electrodes that can apply some stimulation to parts of the brain that are involved in, in movement that are impaired in Parkinson's disease can have can have some beneficial effects yeah for example. I, I, yeah unquestionably I think implanted devices like that have been useful I guess the association that I have is just YouTubers that make a transcranial direct current device out of, you know, nine volt battery and some home electronics and then just pop it on top of their head and see how it affects their memory. Right, exactly. But but I think it's more than that. I'm I'm just kind of making fun a little bit. I know no, that no. there's I know that there's there are ideas about mechanisms of how this is actually helping. Yeah, I think the same. It's similar to uh, pharmacological augmentations. So, for example, I was thinking about reading this the the application uh, with Ritalin, mm -hmm. right, as a study drug. For example, people sometimes will will use Ritalin as a, a way to help them focus better, and it definitely works for some people. So, you know, it it definitely helps people focus on their studies and, and maybe study longer into the night or, or what have you. And similarly, you, know, you could imagine there, there might be a mechanism, uh, electrical stimulation mechanism that would have a similar impact. Uh, you know, I don't know that that's been as clearly established, but you could imagine it. But then the question starts to become with those types of applications is at what cost or is there somehow yeah. a negative downside and in, in, in what balance, what's the balance point there, right? And that's where it's, you know they start talk, talking about some of the ethical implications or what have you. But you know there there starts to be like a question is is there such a thing as a free lunch here? Yeah, and I think that's where it gets interesting because people have talked about drugs that may augment memory and cognition for a long time, and there have been a whole bunch of different times at which it seemed like we were just right on the verge of discovering something that would work in humans, maybe something that had an effect on rats and was going to work in humans so that we'd have essentially almost perfect memory for things. That never seems to pan out perfectly. A lot of the kinds of drugs that are talked about, they call them nootropics, are ones that essentially just seem to increase your attention, like Ritalin or, or you know Adderall or something like that, and aren't as specific in targeting as you might think that there's no, there isn't a drug that can just specifically increase your IQ, which is how people would, you know, what people would love to have. Yeah, I think the issue of trade-offs is a good one because our mind is a pretty carefully calibrated machine. 
we have mechanisms for remembering the important stuff and forgetting the unimportant stuff and meddling around too much with one can potentially have a debilitating effect on who knows exactly what in your mind. I mean, it's a pretty balanced system. Yeah, the, the study of, of the side effects is something that needs to be thought about pretty carefully in all these cases when we're talking about any kind of stimulation or pharmacological approach. We're talking sometimes here about non-invasive stimulation, where the stimulation is essentially coming from the outside, where you're putting something on the skull. But the point that one of the authors here makes is that maybe that's not right to call that non-invasive, because you're injecting electricity into the brain, for example. That's here. right. Yeah. Uh, in the case of a of a pharmacological approach, you're you know you're putting uh, chemicals directly into the brain, and uh, you know, the, the consequences of that, you know, need to be considered when, when, um, when you're doing these, um, when you're applying these, these techniques and probably what's going to happen is you're going to find that there probably is not a free lunch. I mean, that's just interesting that in life that is just seems to be not the case yeah. most, most frequently. Right. I mean, you think about it, you wake up every day. There's no drug that everyone just takes every day to just perform generally better. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe caffeine. <laughs> maybe caffeine, yeah. Maybe caffeine. But, I mean, you, you would argue there that, you know, there's, of course, addictive. Yeah, it's not necessarily optimal to drink as no. much coffee as I drink anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. But even for the body, I mean, we don't take specific, you know, even just other parts of the body, we don't take specific drugs every day just to be generally better. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, I think um, you know, recent evidence on taking vitamins every day suggests that it may not be as beneficial as people have thought it to be, that taking vitamins every single day is going to be something that everybody should do, but it's not always the case. No. And I, and I think there's also a good discrimination that you make between, you know, when you're talking about brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease, that's, right. that's not, it's not playing around with the with the balance of the normal healthy brain, that's remedial. It's an effect that you're using to sort of bring things back into balance. And I think that would be different than what a lot of people want, which is an augmentation of what they already have. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, again, it, it depends on where you're coming from to start with. Parkinson's is a great example. You know, you're in a situation when you're going through this procedure where you're already quite impaired. So the trade-off is very different for you than someone who's coming at it from a healthy perspective. Similarly, you know, the trade-offs, I mean, I think about this from the context of, say, for example, steroids. So if people take, for example, human growth hormone to be a much better baseball player, mm -hmm. well, that's cheating. So, I, you know, that's, that's bad from that perspective. But, you know, maybe from like an economic perspective, it makes sense, right, to, to take this human growth hormone that is going to hurt your body in the long run in different ways and ca potentially cause diseases, but you maybe make yeah. tens of millions of dollars, it may make sense. There's or, an individual incentive for it anyway. Exactly, exactly. Or, you know, someone, you know, th there are lots of real medical applications for human growth hormone where someone's coming from a different perspective of, of not being just someone who's just normally developing. And, and it may be extremely beneficial for that person. So it depends on, you know, where you're coming from, but it's not the case that this is the kind of thing that you just want to take as an average person just to be bigger that's probably not like a good good trade-off for most people and i think in terms of 
cognitive augmentation, I think some people have a natural discomfort with the idea of it, even if it isn't based on upsetting the normal brain or thinking that there might be some trade-off. I think some people are uncomfortable with the idea, maybe especially in, say, college, where they're, you know, if I do better, then maybe other people are doing worse. People can be uncomfortable with the idea of a drug that would just enhance you and make you smarter and perform better just because it feels unnatural, I guess, to people. I don't have that, un I don't have that discomfort. I, I would happily take a smart pill if there was one that had no side effects and just made me smarter because of it. I think one of the things to consider in that case is what would it be like to be smarter? In other words, what would be the kind of improvement that you would see that would convince you that, hey, I wanna take this pill because I feel like I'm better and there's not a negative trade-off. So let's just say, let's just take, for example, let's say there's no physical side effect. There's no liver damage, there's no kidney damage, et cetera. And it's just a change in your mental profile, your cognitive performance profile. I guess I would just feel that whatever it is that you whatever it is that you want, whatever motivations you have, whether it's you know personal gain or something for the greater good, you would have a higher capacity to to make a change. And if by extension, if the human race was smarter, you know, had a better ability to concentrate and 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 think that overall conditions would be better in the world. Maybe that's maybe that's optimistic or maybe that's well, I you know, I, I think it comes, you know, it's, it, it interfaces with values at that point. Yeah, right? there's a I mean there's certainly a there's certainly a moral component and an ethical component and what you consider important for quality of life. Yeah, I mean, because again, you know, to, to the point of, I think what's often conflated of cognitive, cognitive augmentation or improved intelligence that you're necessarily going to be a better person. And I don't think that follows. I don't think it follows that a smarter person is a better person. I think they're different axes. I think that you can have a highly intelligent, extremely devious and nasty person, <laughs> and you yes. can have uh, a relatively less intelligent person who's nevertheless, you know, very good. And yeah, but uh, you personally, whatever you whatever you feel about your, everybody thinks that they themselves are good or their values that they aim for are good. And if they had a little more power to implement them, they they should want them. Now, you may not want it for the rest of the of the world, but is that something you would would you take a smart pill if you could? I so yeah again it depends on what it does right so. I think this is another brings up another issue uh, here, which is that sometimes what you want to do through neurostimulation is actually knock something out mm -hmm. rather than add something in. So, for example, the case of memories. Just if you just think about it, yeah, sure. If I could remember people's names, <laughs> that would be amazing because right. I am right. horrible, horrible yeah. when it comes to memory. And it would just be make my life. It would make my life and the lives of the people who I interact with better. Right. I could remember their fucking names. You have less <laughs> guilt about you have less guilt about uh, interacting with someone if you can't remember their name or something. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Absolutely. And it would be and people like to hear their names. I yeah. want to say their names because I like you know want to connect with them. Yeah. So it would be so much better if I could remember their names. Yes. So that no, but it, it's hard to imagine uh, a pill that would just improve name recognition and not have other <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, I think no, well, yeah. some things I, I want to forget. 
I think the reality of these these things is always much different than the idealization of it. So it is true that every time we talk about the, you know, the far future stuff, you can get into interesting ethical debates that are probably different from any sort of reality that's actually going to happen. And I think the reality right now is that there isn't much in the way of smart pills that's any different from 10, 20 years ago. And you can't have that ideal, only the ideal stuff that you want, nothing else that comes along with it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, I think it's complicated too. One of the really interesting applications of a TMS and maybe a TDCS as well is to actually, you know, say for example, helping someone with depression might be not necessarily as much, you know, maybe it's partly actually just an activation component. So like actually stimulation, but part of it could actually be knocking out obsessive thoughts. Yes. Yeah. That's how I think about how TMS works. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you could actually interrupt an ongoing thought process and that in itself has benefit. And that's nothing like what we think of when we think of like, uh, you know, (laughs) the default position of thinking about augmenting cognition where everything is, you just think of everything being sharper. Yeah. That's really not what you're doing there at all. Yeah, that's a good point because, I mean, certainly that's a way that interference in memory works is that when you're trying to remember that person's name, sometimes it's a matter of getting interference because they remind you of something totally different. So if you're, if you kind of knock out that interference, that could be useful too. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, the one area where, you know, in the physical domain, there is, it's not a free lunch because it is work, but where there is benefit and very little negative down, downside is in exercise, in the world of exercise. Mm-hmm. There's always been the thought, like, if I could just take a pill and I'd be perfectly fit, that'd be amazing, but it doesn't work that way. But if you exercise, that has all kinds of great benefits. And the thought is that, is there something like that in the world of cognition mm-hmm. where you can do an exercise and be better? Mm-hmm. And I think there is. I think there is. I mean, we won't get into some of the more controversial aspects here, you know, because we do, we have our own uh, uh, things that we've written on the topic, and you can mm-hmm. go read those if you want to go read uh, Hardy and Nelson. Uh, yes, you, you can. Uh, you can download that article and 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 read what we've said about it already. But you know, I think there is another area where you can look at and say, actually, people do improve their cognition. I believe fundamentally that people do improve their cognition through exercise when they go to school. I think that I I believe in that. And I don't think everybody necessarily sees it that way or would agree with that statement, but I, I, I really believe it. I people, I think you get smarter by going to school. It's not just that you're remembering more, you have more information or you have things that you can remember that, that you know about that other people don't know. I think you are in fact smarter. I would agree with that. People want something that's quicker and seems more straightforward than that, but and I think then to, you know getting better at that, getting better at the cognitive exercise is really all about understanding better, having a better understanding of what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hard part. It's trying to figure out what do you, what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish, you know, with your brain? Uh, that's the hard thing. And once you have that in mind, then I think constructing, you know, whether it be better instruction or better exercises for improving those cognitive abilities is, is tractable. Yeah. And this is what educators think about all the time is what sorts of 
what sorts of ways can you direct your attention towards exactly these things and use educational techniques so that you so that you're encouraging greater critical thinking and and metacognition and you know real intentional learning that's a i mean it's a big tough it's a topic. huge topic so I, I put that in the category of brain augmentation yeah it's not usually the way that people talk about it so then we can, we, if we, I guess then the third, well, I guess we've actually already been talking about the third topic here, which is clinical applications, ethical issues. Okay, that's what we've been talking about just now. That was the third volume. Yeah. Uh, clinical applications, ethical issues, and futuristic ideas. And futuristic ideas, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously the robo-apocalypse type stuff, and yeah. there's plenty of articles that they included in this about, you know, just looking in the far future and seeing what the, eventual consequences of any of these kinds of technologies are whether they're good or bad and you know mostly calling for more attention to be paid to them and so that we think about some of the ethical issues earlier rather than later and i i guess for me the interesting thing to think about in this context again is what is coming around the corner and i think that's what this article is cool where mm -hmm. you know it's like what, what are we what are we looking at today what are people doing today that has some you know has some potential Maybe that's a good segue to jump into the, the top 10 list. Okay, should we take a little break and then we'll get into that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so if you are, well, you're not just joining us because this isn't radio, but just to remind you of what we're talking about. The name of the article is Augmentation of Brain Function, Facts, Fiction, and Controversy. It's a collection of articles about this topic. And on the first half of the show, we talked about the three main topics that are covered. So brain-machine interfaces, neurostimulation and pharmacological approaches, and then sort of futuristic and clinical applications of it. So now we're going to talk about the highest viewed articles in the topic. So we can think of this as a top 10 list of some of the most exciting stuff that's coming out at the cutting edge of augmentation of brain function. So... Number 10. Number 10. Number 10. When is diminishment a form of enhancement? Rethinking the enhancement debate in biomedical ethics. ERP et al. This is kind of what you were talking about before. So this is exactly. a, the, the ethics debate of when reducing some kind of function can have a helpful effect on your well-being. That's right. I don't know how much else we need to say about this because this is... Exactly. That's, that's what we were just talking about. Okay. Number nine. Number nine is enhancement of cognitive and neural functions through complex reasoning training, evidence from normal and clinical populations. Right, so, so this, this is the cognitive it, training exercise. Yeah, this uh, is the cognitive type. training one. Certainly not the first paper to discuss effects of cognitive training. Um, but it made their top 10 list, which is interesting. And I guess this one is really talking about what you might call metacognition training, as well as you know more uh, lower level training so it's a complex what they call complex reasoning training and there are a whole class of these and many many articles written about this so trying to train people to think a little bit more effectively give them strategies strategy training for thinking more effectively and there's a lot of a lot of articles that have been written about this and it's obviously it's a impact remains controversial and uh, but the fact that you can adopt strategies to think uh, in certain ways to reason in certain ways is something that has been discussed since, uh, I mean, since the ancient Greeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what they're using here is not necessarily brand new, but it is a, it's a 
comprehensive study uh, looking at this stuff. And one of the things that they do is they do something called GIST reasoning training. So the strategy of understanding the GIST, using attention in the right way, reasoning in the right way, and um, using what they call innovation. So the bottom line here is that you can get effective cognitive training by focusing on these larger, larger kinds of training. So it's not quite as absolutely specific, like just attaining, uh, just training focused attention or focused spatial attention. You can you can get results on larger kinds of training. Okay, right, so that's yeah. that's number nine. I don't know how much else we have to say about it, right? I think that's good. Number eight. Number eight. Donor recipient enhancement of memory in rat hippocampus. Now this, this is, is a cool, a yeah. cool article. So in this one, you have rats and you have uh, electrodes recording from the hippocampus of the rat, the so-called donor rat. This uh, donor rat is performing a difficult task, challenging and requires memory. And the recipient animal then is able to do the task based on the, presumably based on the memory trace from the donor rat. So having so, never seen this task before, they're able to perform the task based on the memory from the other rat. And that is just plain cool. That's cool. I mean, <laughs> all right, yeah, that's, now you're starting, now you're talking about some futuristic, futuristic type shit, yeah, at that point. This is an article worth looking at if, if anybody's interested in this. Um, they're, they're plugging in an electrode array into a couple areas of the hippocampus. And we know that the hippocampus is involved in memory consolidation and spatial processing. So they have some complex computer algorithms that decode all of this neural firing. Then they ship it over to the second rat and prog program him or her up. And then that rat can all of a sudden perform better on this delayed match to sample task. So does this mean that we're ready to transplant memories? What do you think? Well, yes, 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 I think so. I mean, I, I, but I, it's not the kind of memory that when you think of like colloquially what you think of as a memory, right? You're not going to be able to like, I'm not going to be able to see Rolf's you know, trip to, to Paris. You know, well, that's, that's disappointing. Not, <laughs> it is it is disappointing because I would that sounds like a great trip so I would love to have been there in my mind uh, but I don't think that's going to happen right now well, but you know maybe I mean maybe there if you for example had if you recorded from a part of the brain uh, and, and you basically overlearned some response pattern you know maybe you could improve I don't know improve someone's response to you know a similar pattern I'm not thinking exactly. martial arts, maybe? Maybe you could do some martial arts with it. Maybe, maybe. Well, this obviously has all the same difficulties in, you know, mapping one brain onto another brain that we've talked about before, too, which is, I mean, people's brains work differently. So it's not, there isn't really an easy language of brain activation that you can translate directly from one to another. The hippocampus oh. is probably a nice area for doing this kind of thing because there is a, you know, it's very spatially oriented and might be a, a, a good place to test this out. We wouldn't necessarily expect that this would work in all different brain areas, but. No, but you know, another area where this would work would definitely work. And, and, and again, you could argue how, how much this counts, but it would definitely work. 
is if you took an electrode array and you recorded from your V1, your visual mm. cortex area one, right? And let's just say you were just looking at letters, say like simple letters like H, T, mm -hmm. E, mm -hmm. and you decoded that and then you planted some electrodes into my visual cortex area one and the right and you got the right spatial mapping. So you got the do the translation of whatever the you know, different orientation of my cortical surface of my brain is, et cetera. And you plop those, that array down, you could give me the quote unquote memory of having seen the E and the T and the H and the, that sort of thing. So I would actually see those things. I would actually see the letters. It would be I like, like a, that idea. More, more like phosphenes is the way this is described when people have have done this in the past, you know, where someone has had, a, you know, you see like little spots of light. Mm -hmm. This seems like a natural for the next, uh, the next rat study too. I wonder if that's, uh, that's coming up. That seems like that would be very, very doable. Number seven. Number seven. Tra <laughs> Transcranial direct current stimulation. Five important issues we aren't discussing, but probably should be. This one is, that's that nine volt battery on the head thing. I think this one's kind of straightforward that when you hook a nine volt battery up to the top of your head and put electricity in, we don't know exactly what's happening. And we should probably think about it and figure out what we're doing and whether it's a good idea to do that. <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, they point out that, you know, it doesn't, not everyone responds exactly the same way to this. And even when you do it to the same person a couple of different times, they don't necessarily always have exactly the same experience. And I like that one of the important issues is that changes in electric current are related to hair thickness. <laughs> okay. Point. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. It's, so not super precise. Let's just say that. Yeah. I think it's true. It's an important issue. I think. No, absolutely. I mean, no, I mean, I think, right, I, I, with the TMS and the TDCS, all, there's a lot of hype. And you have a lot of people hooking themselves up to these things, and that's fine, you know. Uh, but it's probably not doing somebody else. Harm. Well, when you, when, you, when you hook somebody else up to one of these things, you should really think about what you're doing. If you want to do it yourself, uh, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Number six. Sleep for cognitive enhancement. Ooh, that's a good one. This one Basically, confused the... me a bit. This one confused me a bit. Yeah. Because the issue, as I kind of understood it here, is that how do you know whether sleep, whether you can use sleep for enhancing cognition, or how do you know that it's just something that's kind of restorative? Right. So I, I think it's a little bit of a, a red herring here for this for this particular topic area, but... It is the case that mem that sleep is very important for memory consolidation. Absolutely. And for cognitive performance. Uh, and we've known that for a long time from long time. a whole bunch of different studies. Yeah. And so there, there's some interesting research into exactly why and how that's working. You know, what is it about the way that the brain is, is operating when you're asleep? So there's different um, patterns of activation across the entire cortex at different frequencies that people have looked at. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a topic area. That's a huge, huge area for research. You know, this whole idea of REM sleep, for example, what's going on in the brain and REM sleep versus non REM sleep. And uh, so well, I guess one question involved here is, so if you, if you learn this from observing sleep, 
then some researchers might say, all right, if we know that this is helpful for cognition, then can we just isolate this and induce this and increase cognition? Right. And I, I think there's there's some interesting research too. And like, if you're trying to learn something, when do you want to go to sleep? Right. Relative you to learn when... it. So one of the things that I remember from, from this uh, research t area was that you have some amnesia for things that happened a few minutes before you fall asleep. So like the five minutes before you fall asleep, you don't, tend to not remember things very well mm -hmm. for those like few minutes right before you fall asleep. So if you're trying to study late into the night, for example, for a test the next day, probably don't want to study the most important thing right before you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. That's like one area, for example. So is there some way to manipulate the timing and the amount and, and type of sleep that you get to, to better learn and remember? That makes sense. They also did some nifty studies where you can increase or you can augment memories by using olfactory cues or giving them a smell while they're sleeping. That increases their memory for, for certain kinds of things. I thought that was kind of nifty. Right, yeah. The, it's always interesting to think about, you know, the, there's such a relationship between the olfactory system and the memory system. There's just an ancient connection in the brain between those systems. Mm -hmm. Always interesting to see when they when you can draw those things out. But the bottom line conclusion that they came to is sleep seems like less of a way to augment cognition than just a restorative. It brings you up to baseline normal performance, but extra sleep is not going to buy you more. It's That's not right. like if you slept 18 hours a day that you would be that much better. Right, or at all better. Yeah. At all better. <laughs> yeah. Probably it's a lot like worse. A, it's probably like an optimal amount for each person. Enough, yeah. Okay, number five. Number five. Attitudes towards pharma pharmacological cognitive enhancement, a review. All right, so this just looks at how people think about different kinds of pills that may or may not make you smart. Yeah, this is the least interesting conclusion that I can possibly imagine. The authors conclude that the public concerns regarding pharmacological enhancement, medical safety, coercion, and fairness match the agenda of academic debates. Okay. Number four. <laughs> <laughs> Number four. Increased intelligence is a myth so far. This is by Hire. And he is talking about the problems of quantifying the effects of cognitive training. So this guy always is talking about cognitive training and how it's useless. And yeah, except for when he's writing the study, writing the article about the one that he did. Basically, he makes the point that uh, it's difficult to evaluate the enhancement uh, from cognitive training because the measures that we have for doing so are not great. And that is, that is again, certainly true. I, I buy that, that it is difficult to give a good measure of intelligence. We would love to have something that perfectly measured what we meant by intelligence. We just don't have anything. Yeah, and I think this actually conflates two separate issues, and, and the, both are discussed in this article, and both implicated by this article. One is that we don't really know what we mean by intelligence, and so measuring it effectively is a challenge. That's that's probably a whole episode of itself right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so we won't get too deep into it here, but basically, it's hard to know what that actually means. But then it's also hard just to, to reliably re uh, measure cognition from an individual 
um, there's a lot of difference in performance across across individuals and then within an individual over time. And so one of the consequences of that is that tests of cognition to be reliable need to be relatively long. Mm-hmm. So, you know, short Which tests. Which makes it harder to carry out a study and, right. yeah. Exactly. And also then there's this whole this whole idea of both performative elements, like is someone really going to be focused and paying attention for a very long test and what is the implication for that? And then how much is the actual testing then actually changing performance, right? So you start to get a lot of practice on the test if the test is very long, and then that has implications for the, the retest effects. So it's, 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 a, it's a, what I would call a real problem. <laughs> In other words, it's not just people talking uh, that it's a problem. It's, a, it's an actual problem that is, in fact, difficult to solve. It is hard to know the way that, that you could work your way out of this eventually. I think it's, a, it's just, it's been a real problem for a long time. It's remain difficult, yeah. Yep. Number three, and this is my favorite one, augmentation of cognitive brain functions with transcranial lasers. Lasers. So this is cool. So this is this is a suggestion. So this is like the those uh, direct current kinds of uh, things. So except it has lasers, which is lasers are have been proven to be cooler than electricity. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's a fact. <laughs> but what I like what I like about this is, they but no, pro- but no microwaves. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, and we've that's been a topic we've been on is. Microwaves are less cool, though. I mean, lasers are cooler than, my, than well, microwaves, for sure. Yeah, we know that. That's, there's research, there's research that has shown true. that to be true. So this this is nifty because it is not only just that they say, we think lasers are cool and we should point them at people's heads, but they suggest a way that this may actually be improving cell function and improving general metabolic processes. They're saying that they, the, the lasers could affect brain bioenergetics, which is awesome. Yes. I don't know what that means exactly, but that is that sounds really cool. So, yeah, I, I barely have an understanding of it. I sort of get it. So it seems to affect cytochrome oxidase in mitochondria. And from what, what I remember of mitochondria is that's where energy comes from in the cell. So... Yes, so you want that. So you want that. And if you can get it through lasers... Yeah, um, it's much easier than eating, for example. It is much easier than eating, and I love the idea that we can sustain ourselves on lasers. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah, the no, I, I see. Sure. I see no problems with this whatsoever. This yeah. is going to go swimmingly. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I'm going to stop eating today. I would, yeah, this is all about shooting your head with lasers now. So that's and there's not going to be there's not going to be any problems with that. No, <laughs> whatsoever. No, no. But it is exciting and it, it is, is cool. nifty that there's an actual an actual mechanism for how you might get some improved effects. So cytochrome oxidase is something that can be affected by photons of light. And you can increase the energy level of the cell with it. So that that seems in, that seems like it could be positive. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, lasers are, as you say, super awesome. 
Awesome. And you can focus them and you can shoot them in different ways and they can different wavelengths, what kinds yep. of stuff you can do. And interestingly, I think they suggest, just like we said, microwaves, there's only a certain set of wavelengths that actually work in creating that sound in your head. They suggest that 600 to 1150 nanometer wavelengths are the best kind to shoot at your head. <laughs> That's right. Good. Good. Are me? Yep. Okay. Number two, <laughs> non-invasive brain stimulation is not non-invasive. We talked about this a bit already. Uh, yeah, basically. And hinted this... in it in the laser thing. So that's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They're saying, "Hey, TMS, TDCS. Uh, guess what? You know, you're shooting uh, either magnetic stimulation or electrical direct current stimulation into the brain. That's that's having an impact directly in the brain. Maybe it shouldn't really be considered non-invasive." I mean, the non-invasive is that you're not cutting the skull open. That's that's what's non-invasive about it. There's They're not something it, physically going in there. That's right. I mean, I think uh, well, also, there, I mean, there is. I mean, physically, there is in the sense of physics, right? Like, there's electromagnetic radiation. Yeah. Right, but it's cutting. You're not cutting. That's that's the that's what it is, right? You're not cutting. Well, you're not poking. Pet, scan, pet scans are. I don't know if they you consider pet scans invasive or not, but a pet scan is positron emission tomography so that uses radioactive substances that go in your bloodstream right and as they get emitted i don't know that's, that's invasive that invasive because well i don't know whether it would be or not but i mean it's invasive in the sense that like if you're talking about like the difference being like poking versus not po it's like you're sticking a, a needle in your arm or or yeah it's, it's a question mark yeah I, mean, I get i get their point they get their point it's it's uh what non what does non-invasive mean really and uh, what we sh what it should not mean, and their point is it should not mean that it's necessarily safer. Yeah, if it's not totally passive, if there's something, if there is something going into your skull, then it is invasive in a way, even if it's elect, if even if it's just low levels of electricity. So it's a it may be a misnomer because I think a lot of researchers strive for something that's non-invasive. They want something that is not harmful and maybe they conflate the terms non-invasive with non-harmful and i think that's what that's what they're getting at here that's right exactly and i think uh right i mean if you're trying to pass it by the institutional review board mm -hmm. uh the, the, yeah. the term non-invasive is probably an attractive term to use but yes uh, to all you irb people out there yeah keep in mind that it doesn't mean that it's not not dangerous mm -hmm. yep point taken totally makes sense and the number one article, performance enhancement at the cost of potential brain plasticity, neural ramifications of nootropic drugs in the healthy developing brain. So this one is really talking about this uh, idea that there's no free lunch. Yep. That, that's their big argument, right? You can take a drug uh, you know, that might enhance your cognition for a period of time. Through Such as cocaine, for example. Yeah, uh, and well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying suggesting to here. Yeah, I'm just so, trying to I think mean, about the, how much uh, enhancement that is. But yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe that's not actually enhancement. But I guess um, it does seem like the bottom line here is drugs have unwanted consequences. They often do. Yeah, I mean, uh, and in case, and in fact, like we can't really even come up with examples where there are any that don't by having some. Effect and being able, you know, especially 
when it comes to drugs that affect the brain, the the same mechanism that has an impact on the brain that may be positive in a certain situation, in another situation would have an, would be the effect would be considered negative. And I think one of the things they're kind of getting at is the idea that it's sort of like using a performance enhancing drug as a crutch. It decreases your ability to be flexible, describes it as loss of pot potential brain plasticity. So the idea that you're less able to be flexible and sort of employ different kinds of brain strategies if you're relying on something like a drug. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I that's what know. I'm taking up. Maybe that's not, is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I love the use of the term brain plasticity in this context. Um, I think that might be, they might be uh, abusing the term here a little bit. Neurospeak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, brain plasticity is, is uh, it's a very general thing, right? The brain changes in response to experience, in response to drugs, in response to aging, everything, right? So brain plasticity is, is just always happening. It's always there. I, I would say maybe if you're saying potentially at the cost of brain health, maybe that would be like a, a more specific way of saying what they're trying to say. But I yeah. get the I get the point, right? There's point no free is lunch. Taken. Yeah, point, yeah, point taken, point taken. So what of these? You said your your favorite was the lasers. So okay, so yeah, I would say my two favorite. I have two clear winners here. Okay, one is the donor and recipient and recipient rats for rat hippocampus, where they hook two rats up and transfer memories across them, and the other one is the lasers. The, yeah. Transcranial lasers. Yeah, no, what about my, you? My clear favorite is the donor recipient enhancement of memory and rat hippocampus. I just, that's a clear winner. That's Very a good nifty. one. That's a good one. Yes. Yeah. I mean, because it, it, it captures all the, the things, right? You know, it's the input and the output and the mapping between two different, two different organisms. And it's cool. It's cool. I mean, yeah. It, I wonder if there's, um, I wonder if there's anything you could do along those lines with so-called non-invasive techniques. Is there anything you could extract from someone's brain using EEG and then transfer that to another person? Um, well, I mean, the difficulty is probably in the writing. Right. Exactly. It's like You uh, could probably do that in the peripheral, right? Like one person could be... Uh, yeah, you could control someone else's hand, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I bet you could do that. I bet you could do that. Do, have people done that? I feel like people must have done that already. Controlling another person's hand? Well, there's those... Yeah, there's some of those where they have they control something from a distance where they move a robot arm. Right, but if they have they done it where that you control... Like, Rolf controls Joe's arm. I have seen... They have a... They have a easy version of this that just does the muscle movement and then makes your arm and then zaps your arm to make your muscle move at the same time. But yeah, no, I, EEG, I did that one from I did that one at, uh, at, at, uh, yeah, at the society for neurosciences, there was a company that has had a thing where they were doing that. We were zapping each other. I remember that backyard brains. Yep. That was fun, but I didn't feel like the, the writing was, was really quite uh, primitive. It was, it was literally the, 
the term zapping. Um, yeah, it was also a little bit painful. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it's like yeah i would say invasive in, yeah exactly exactly kind of a little bit like along the lines of like you know touching like a electrical fence yeah that kind of sensation i wouldn't want to do it long term no doesn't seem like an augmentation strategy yeah okay well this is great it's fun going over all of these new experiments and new trends and stuff that's going on in brain augmentation yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the show, and we'll be back next week with another episode.